Turn to Matthew chapter 12, if you would. And as you're turning there and finding that spot. Um, kids, how many of you in here have been told, maybe this Christmas season or in a previous Christmas season, what your parents were getting, maybe one of your siblings or maybe the other parent, and told you to keep it a secret? Has that ever happened in your home? All right, I see some hands going up. How many of you have been very good at keeping that secret? There's fewer hands, all right? Have you ever made the mistake and actually given the secret away? You wanted everyone to know what the gift was, and you just kind of let it come out. Has that ever happened with any of you guys? Yeah, thank you, Noah. All right, it does happen. Okay, and in my home, my dad was very good at getting the secret out. Okay, so I only remember one Christmas where my mom got him a briefcase that he was genuinely surprised. All the other things, he wasn't a good actor. All the other times, he'd go, oh, yay. And it's because he had already fished it out of all of us, the kids. He, he would ask for little clues here or there so that he could, so the secret would be revealed. And I, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to know what was wrapped, what I was getting. I remember once, although my mom disputes the, the details of this story, I remember once that um, my parents had bought me something good for Christmas. They told me it was, it was something nice, but it, I don't know why they told me this. It was hidden under the guest bedroom um, bed. Now, I don't know why that information was given to me, because that's like major temptation, right? So the guest bedroom bed could be seen from the hallway, and for all that week leading up to Christmas, I played in the hallway with my Matchbox cars as low to the ground as I could get so I could look and try to see what was under that bed. And I did. I figured it out. I saw it. It was a Nerf basketball goal. It was very exciting. Now, here's where the details vary. Because my mom had threatened me, if I see you looking under the bed and trying to figure out what your gift is, you're not going to get it. So I had to figure out some way to do it without her knowing about it. And apparently, she clued in. Um, I guess because I've been playing Matchbox cars every day outside the door in the hallway, low to the ground. She figured out that I had found out what my gift was. Now, she says she went ahead and gave it to me that year. I, I, my recollection is I didn't get it for a whole other year. But, but probably my mom's correct. But secrecy at Christmas time is, is sort of the fun of giving gifts to one another. Now, the reason I, I bring that up is because in today's text, Jesus is continuing his ministry and people are finding out about who he is and what he's capable of doing. They see his miracles and everything else and they go, want to go around and they want to make him known and Jesus tells them not to do it. Don't make me known. Don't go out and share about me. And I think it's kind of odd to us that Jesus would tell them that. And today's text is a key text in understanding why Jesus gave that command to his um, not only his disciples, but to others, people he healed, and, and many others, that they were not to go out and share who he was. Now, we're continuing our series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, as I already mentioned. Sometimes in the past, at Christmas time, we've done a specific series related to Advent or related to the Christmas season. Like last year, we did a series called God With Us, which was a, uh, a journey through the book of Isaiah, looking at the different Christmas passages in Isaiah. And other, other years, we've just continued preaching through whatever series we were in, and that's what we're doing this year. So um, today we're going to jump back over to Matthew. We've been in John, John chapter 5. We're going to jump back over to Matthew, 
and, and let me explain a little bit here. This text in Matthew chapter 12, it actually, in Matthew's gospel, follows right behind Jesus' confrontation with the Pharisees on the Sabbath where he heals the man with the withered hand. Now, Matthew's gospel isn't as chronologically structured as some of the other gospels are. And even with the gospels, some of the other synoptics that are chronologically structured, sometimes we have to try to do our best to try to figure out where some of John's events figure into the chronological structure. So, because in Mark, all those five confrontations with the Pharisees were like one big chunk, I preached through those that they all happened at the same time and then Then Jesus went down for the Jewish feast in Jerusalem where he continued to confront Pharisees about the Sabbath. Uh, Sometimes you'll find people say that that actually happened in the middle of those five stories. That Jesus went down for the feast and came back. And this confrontation on the Sabbath where he heals the man with the withered hand actually happened after the events that we just preached in John. So you have different of opinion there. But regardless, this text here is happening after Jesus has had these confrontations with the Pharisees. He's had a confrontation with the Pharisees about him being Lord of the Sabbath, about healing on the Sabbath. He's demonstrated who he is, and he has proclaimed who he is through these confrontations. And this text follows after those confrontations. So so please stand, if you would, now. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 15. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until... He brings justice to victory, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. I know this Gentile right here uh, is, is so thankful that I can put my hope in Christ, in the suffering servant. And so I pray, God, that you'd help us, enable us through the Holy Spirit to preach correctly this morning. Help me to preach correctly. Give me a word that can speak your word uh, accurately. Uh, Give us ears to hear. Lord, strike any error from my sermon this morning, I pray. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Like I said, you're going to have to forgive me as I continue to battle this voice uh, through today's sermon. As I've already mentioned, this comes after Jesus has had confrontations with the Pharisees. We actually know they want to kill him now. They want to get rid of him, and that's why Jesus is withdrawing from them. It says in verse 15, Jesus aware of this, aware of the plot of the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders to get rid of him. He withdrew from there. Jesus chooses in today's text to distance himself from these murderous Jewish leaders because it was not yet his time to be handed over to them. It was not yet his time to suffer at their hands. At this point in Jesus' ministry, we see two things regarding how Jesus was received by the people. First of all, as we just mentioned, we see that within the Jewish leadership, Jesus is as hated as he's ever been at this point in his ministry. He's as hated as he's ever been by the Jewish leaders. But we also see, secondly, that within the general Jewish population, Jesus is as popular as he's ever been. He's as popular as he's ever been. The crowds are are, are, are flocking to Jesus. 
That's why we read in verse 15 that many followed him. Now, this isn't referring necessarily to the disciples following him in faith and believing in him, but simply throngs of people. Some were admiring him, others wanted something from him, and some probably were just curious about him. We will continue to see the crowds gather around Jesus. They won't leave him alone. Jesus is immensely popular with the people. That may be another reason that the leaders hate him. That combination of people loving you, yet leaders hating you, is a pretty dangerous combination. But we know from texts like Matthew chapter 21, verse 46, that these Jewish leaders chose not to act on their hatred towards Jesus because they were afraid of Jesus' popularity. They were actually afraid of the people. They feared the crowds and feared how the crowds might react if they did something to Jesus. So they, they planned to get rid of him, but their plans continued to be cooked up in secret. Now, despite the fact that most in the crowds did not genuinely love Jesus or genuinely desire to follow and obey Jesus, Jesus shows tremendous compassion toward them. Read in verse 15, it says that he healed all of them. It's almost as if Jesus can't help it. At times he tries to get away to a quiet place. At other times he gets in boats to keep the crowds from crushing him. Yet all the while he has compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. But this text today focuses us in on something interesting that Jesus commands the crowd as he continues to preach to them, as he continues to heal them. We've seen it before already in our study through the Gospels, but it's the focus of this text, and that is that Jesus tells the crowds not to make him known. We read read in verse 16, he ordered them not to make him known. He does not merely ask them not to make him known. He orders them. He commands them. This was the Greek word here, it means it was a stern command, not a, not a mild suggestion. He commands them not to make him known. Now, I think if we're honest, that seems strange to us, right? Doesn't that seem a little bit strange to us? I mean, if you grew up in church, you grew up being told by Sunday school teachers and pastors, Awana leaders, RA and GA leaders, whatever you had in your church, and of course your parents, to share Jesus, right? Share Jesus with others. We, you, you, we're even... Told, we even sing the song at this time of year, go tell it on the mountain, right? Yet here Jesus commands the very opposite. He orders them, he commands them not to make him known. It does seem strange to us. It seems the very opposite. Matter of fact, we read earlier of the, of the angels uh, proclaiming the good news of Jesus and the shepherds going out and doing that. Yet Jesus here commands people to do the opposite. Matter of fact, he commands this a lot in the Gospels. He commands it a lot. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 20, after Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, it says, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. After Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, before Peter, James, and John, they're coming down the mountain in Matthew 17, 9, and Jesus says to them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So we've already seen and we will see That Jesus tells people not to make him known. He heals people and tells them not to make him known. He even casts out demons and tells the demons not to make him known. Mark chapter 3 verses 11 through 12. We'll look at this passage next week by the way. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. But why? Why the secrecy? 
Well, I think there are a few reasons we could think of. For example, Jesus wanted to reveal himself on his terms, gradually, and to whom he so willed. That was part of it. We also know that Jesus only wanted praise and acclaim from those who truly believed in him. He didn't want the praise that comes from those who who just wanted to use him or those who just admired him. Only those who accepted his lordship would be those to whom he would command to testify about his name. Shouldn't that be the same today? Only those who are actually under his lordship should identify themselves with him. How much harm, my friends, is done in the church today in the name of Christ by those who don't live according to their confession. Those who claim to be Christians, but there's no evidence that it's actually true. I mean, I don't want them proclaiming Jesus. I hope you don't want them proclaiming Jesus. I don't want them making Jesus known. Why? Because they don't live according to what they confess, and thereby they do harm to the cause of Christ. Some of the greatest harm that's done to the church and to the cause of Christ is by those who claim to be Christians but act in a totally different way. The world's only too eager to expose Christian hypocrites. No, only transformed lives should serve as true witnesses to Christ's person and power. So those are a couple of reasons, but there's more. And we aren't left to guess, because in today's text, Jesus actually gives us the reason, or Matthew gives us the reason why Jesus is demanding secrecy. It says in verse 16, he ordered them not to make him known. And then verse 17, we have the reason. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So, Jesus ordered secrecy in order to fulfill Scripture. And what is the Scripture that he is referring to here? Well, it's Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 3. It's a Messianic Scripture about the Messiah's character and the mission of the Messiah as a suffering servant. So, Jesus' command that his identity be kept secret is bound up in Jesus' mission and his character prophesied in Isaiah. Bottom line is this, Jesus' mission wasn't a mission of making much of himself, but a mission that required lowliness, meekness, and humility. I mean, I think it's interesting, uh, I read a a devotional this week that made this point. Um, No other world leaders, uh, even if you celebrate their birthday, the birthday of, I don't know, Martin Luther King Jr. or the birthday of uh, George Washington or whatever else, No other world leaders do you actually celebrate them as a baby. We don't have pictures of George Washington as a a baby and drawings of him as a baby and and post those all over the place when we think about his birth or we celebrate his birth. So something about the birth of Jesus is different. And that is this whole image of Christ coming as a baby is very much the image of humility, of lowliness, even of weakness. So what else do we see here? What do we see here in Isaiah 42 about Jesus' mission and his character? And how does it relate to his desire not to be made known? Well, here's the first thing in your notes. The first thing is this. Jesus came as a humble servant, not as a celebrity. Behold, verse 18, my servant whom I have chosen. One of the most important messianic titles given to Jesus is that of God's servant. It is a messianic title. Jesus is the suffering servant foretold of in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and also in Isaiah 52 through 53. 
Now, the Hebrew word for servant is unambiguous. It can only mean servant. But interestingly enough, when it's translated into the Greek, the word is pice, which means which can either mean servant or son. Christ is indeed both. This turns out to be the perfect title for Jesus. He is the suffering servant son. Now, this word, when used to refer to a servant, always meant a very close, trusted servant, a trusted aide. It was often used to refer to a royal servant in a king's court. The servant was the one chosen to do the king's bidding or to carry out the king's work or the king's task. Jesus was indeed the king of the universe's servant, his chosen servant. But he was unique in that his, the role he was called to, this task that he was charged to carry out for his father as the king, was a role that required him to suffer. And that is made abundantly clear in Isaiah 53. Let me just read one verse from Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This son servant came to serve God by suffering. Suffering marked his ministry. And that is one reason that he demanded that his identity be kept secret. For he didn't, want to become, he didn't want to be celebrated. He didn't come to be celebrated. He came to suffer. He didn't come to be a celebrity, but to be a servant. As we mentioned last week in John chapter 5, verse 43, it says this. Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. People wanted a Messiah who came tooting his own horn. They wanted a celebrity, and Jesus could have done that. And it would have taken him off of his mission had he done that. He could have come with the type of political bravado and swagger that the Jewish leaders wanted. And he would have been exalted for it. But Jesus sought to fulfill the Scriptures. That was not what the Scriptures had spoken about. They hadn't spoken about this swaggering political figure, but they spoke of a suffering servant. But the Jewish leaders didn't have God's Word abiding in them. So they crafted their own job description of a good Messiah. But God had already given them his description here in Isaiah. Humble, meek, lowly, coming to suffer. Even Jesus' moment of greatest public acclaim was a humble act. You remember Matthew 21, the, the triumphal entry? What does it say as he enters Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passion Week? It says he comes in riding on a colt. And we read in verse 4 of Matthew 21 that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus never invited fame. Jesus never invited attention to himself. Instead, we always see him getting away from the crowds. He had every chance to make much of himself. And that's what Satan was tempting him to do. Way back in the temptations in the wilderness when he told him to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. He was essentially saying, let, let God's angels save you. Then, then you'll have everyone's attention. And surely on the cross, Satan was tempting Jesus as well. As the scoffers cried out, save yourself, come down from the cross. Because he certainly could have done that. And everyone would have made much of him had he done that, but they would have made much of him for the wrong reasons. 
And surely Satan was whispering temptations in Jesus' ear when Peter, upon Jesus' arrest, pulled a sword and lopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And we read Jesus say to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. Immediately he could have called legions of angels, but Jesus wasn't concerned about tooting his own horn and making much of himself. He was concerned about fulfilling the Scriptures. The Scriptures. The Scriptures spoke of the Messiah first as a suffering servant. Jesus was humble and meek, and he gladly obeyed and submitted to his Father's will. Hebrews 5, 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And of course, it was through his suffering that he was saved many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What we have in Jesus with his humility and his meekness is the opposite of the Jewish leaders. It's the polar opposite of what these Jewish leaders were doing. They wanted attention. Remember, we read, we'll read later in Matthew chapter 6 that they practiced their righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. They blew trumpets when they gave. They prayed to be seen. They offered up empty phrases to be heard. And they made sure everyone knew that they were afflicted when they fasted. And Jesus didn't come doing those things. He came pointing away from himself in perfect submission and obedience to his Father in order to ser- serve and save sinners like you and I. Proud sinners who love to make much of ourselves. He chose to save by making himself nothing. Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now there's application for us here, for all of us here. For that very Philippians passage that I just read tells us to have that mind. To have the mind of Christ. We are to imitate his humility. We are to make ourselves nothing and take on the form of servants. That was, after all, the lesson Jesus gave as he washed the disciples' feet. Do you remember? And this applies across the board from our parenting to the way we operate in the workplace and especially in the ministry. And as I said last week, I wonder how many of those who are pastors today better fit the Pharisees' job description of leadership than Jesus's. Boastful, arrogant, prideful, loud, harsh. We see it far too often. And I ask you, please pray that God will make and keep our leaders at Harbin's humble and Christ-like. Jesus came as a suffering servant, humble, giving himself away. He could do nothing else for it was his joy to obey the Father and be a servant, a suffering servant. And it greatly pleased the Father. So the next thing we see in your outline here is this. Jesus came to please his Father, not his fans. He came to please his Father, not his fans. He had a lot of fans, but he had few true followers. Verse 18, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. 
I'll put my spirit upon him, and he'll proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Notice first that the Father calls the Son my beloved. This is the fuel in Jesus' engine. It's what keeps him going. It's what keeps him from seeking fans. He knew he was loved by the Father, therefore he didn't need the love of men. We, we have to learn this, friends. Only in Christ can we learn this. For if we are united to Christ, then we too have been folded into a much deeper level of God's love. Love that goes beyond the common grace poured out upon all mankind. A love that is the love God has for the Son and that we have now become partakers of. We too, if we're in Christ, if you're a believer, are the beloved of God. And we must know this. If we do not know this, if we do not understand the love we have via our union with Christ, then we will seek the love of men. We'll seek fans. The Christian who is insecure is a Christian who doesn't know how much he or she is truly loved. Christ Jesus was absolutely secure. He didn't need fans. Jesus wouldn't have been checking his Facebook to see how many friends he now had. He wouldn't have been checking Twitter to see how many followers he now had. What a vain, foolish, insecure age we live in. And how many Christians are swept up in it? It's an empty age. We are starved for true love, and we try to find it in a thousand places other than the only place that it can truly be found. Now, the flip side of the fact that Jesus knew that he was the beloved of the Father was the fact that his desire was to please the Father, and the Father was indeed pleased. That's why Jesus is called in this text here, verse 18, the beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. My soul. This is God the Father speaking. My soul, meaning that God's pleasure is a deep pleasure. His whole being rejoices in the work of his servant. My soul is well pleased, meaning fully pleased, fully satisfied. There was no room left in God's soul to be more pleased. In his own son, the father saw the image of his own glory perfectly displayed, and thus he fully delighted in the son. To do anything less than to be fully or well pleased would make God the father an idolater. It would mean that the son wasn't sufficient. But Christ is fully God and therefore fully displays the glory of the father. Thus the father himself is fully and deeply pleased. And it was this love and joy, mutual love and joy between the Father and the Son that motivated Jesus to do everything he did, even to suffer and to serve. John four thirty four. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This was Jesus' lifeblood, loving, joyful obedience to his Father. We read on and God says, through Isaiah, quoted here by Matthew, he says, I will put my spirit upon him. <laughs> Do you see the beauty of the Trinity here? You should, especially after we've just done this study on the Trinity. How does God express his love and pleasure to the Son, and how does the Son reciprocate that love? Through the Holy Spirit. 
Remember what we studied about the role of the Holy Spirit. The Father gives the Spirit to the Son. The Son obeys the Father through the Spirit. The Spirit is a key figure in the Godhead for the communication of love and enjoyment within the Godhead. And by the way, the Holy Spirit is key for us as well for the communication of God's love and the experiencing of His joy. Jesus gives the Spirit to His people and by His Spirit unites us to Himself. We saw this beautiful Trinitarian work on display at Jesus' baptism. Remember? Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, now think about this, the Spirit coming down upon the Son. And what does God the Father say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And what does that sound like? Isaiah 42. In this case, the beloved servant with whom I am well pleased, who is also the beloved son with whom the father is well pleased, fully pleased. So Jesus gladly and joyfully, out of perfect love, obeys the father by carrying out the mission of the father Summarized here in verse 18 as he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Which leads me to our final point. Jesus came to bring forth justice through gentleness, not through force. Jesus came to bring justice through gentleness, not through force. Justice here means God's just verdict. For those who had eyes to see, the suffering servant's purpose for suffering was coming into view now. For God's just verdict is death for all mankind. All the nations, the Gentiles included, the wages of sin is death. And here Jesus' mission is to proclaim justice, to proclaim God's just verdict. But we see from the whole text that the suffering servant's proclamation and work of justice is a cause of celebration. If we look at the whole text here, we see it talking about victory and celebration. But but how? How can God's just verdict be something happy when we all deserve death? Well, it can only be a reason of celebration if another has stood in our place so that the verdict is no longer guilty for us, which is exactly what Jesus came to do. That was the purpose of his suffering. Let me jump back to Isaiah 53. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then jumping down to verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. By the way, that's speaking of the resurrection right there. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. 
and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. The Jewish leaders, especially these Pharisees and scribes, they knew the scriptures. They should have seen this. They should have seen that the only path to life in the face of God's full justice is a path paved by another who grants us undeserved mercy and forgiveness by bearing our sins and who accounts or credits his spotless righteousness to us. And the only way that could happen is if God became man and if God were with us in the flesh, Emmanuel. And they missed it. They missed it. This was Jesus This was God in the flesh speaking to them. And they want to kill him. They want nothing to do with him. They didn't even realize that they were being used to carry out the will of God. For it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This day had come when God's justice would be satisfied, but they didn't see it. They wanted their own kind of justice. Kind of like your kids, you know. You come hear them squabbling in the room, and, and you come in and you say, what's going on? And, and they'll say, so-and-so took this toy from me. Dad, bring justice, Dad, on so-and-so. I'm not using names. Bring justice. And the other kid says, well, but, but he or she did this. Bring justice. None of them want real justice. And that's these Jewish leaders. These stinking Romans, they wanted the Romans to be struck down. They wanted the Gentile dogs to submit to them in their pride and arrogance and nationalistic zeal. They failed to see and learn from the scriptures that if God were to rain down perfect justice on the earth, all mankind would be wiped out in the fury of his wrath. So due to the fact that they couldn't even see their own sinfulness, they had put their own job description For a Messiah out there that required a forceful, violent, audacious, puffed up ruler who would come and do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. Namely, to get rid of the Romans and thus come out from under their rule. What they didn't want or expect was a gentle, peaceful, meek, humble servant who was coming to do for them something else they couldn't do for themselves. Namely, to get rid of their sin and thus come out from under the wrath of God. So, so what we have next here in this text is a description of the character. It's almost like a job description, if you will. The character and manner of the Messiah that the Father had sent, which was totally not what they wanted in a Messiah. Verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. Jesus did not come to quarrel and conduct public debates. This phrase carries the idea of loudness and argumentativeness. It does not mean that Jesus comes in absolute silence. We just read that he proclaims justice. He did preach and teach, and he even engaged in the occasional debate with the Pharisees. But he did not do so in a flamboyant and forceful manner. He did so in such a way as to, he did not do so in such a way as to humiliate his opponents. And this is how we are to operate. We are to imitate Christ. If we have Christ in us, he empowers us to act like him. We too are not to be quarrelsome. But this doesn't mean we don't speak. 
It doesn't mean we don't occasionally get into controversies or engage people with arguments about the Scriptures. But how do we do it? 2 Timothy 2 tells us. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant, just as Christ was a servant, so too we are to be the Lord's servant. It's specifically written to pastors. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Matthew goes on. He says, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. This simply means that he wasn't going to parade himself around. He wasn't going to promote himself. He was genuinely humble and showed it in the way he spoke and carried himself publicly. Unlike other humble leaders of our day, I think it's funny that election time, you know, you have this guy get up there and there's confetti and, you know, balloons and a big old picture of himself. And what does he say? I humbly ask for your vote. That is not humility. Why don't you just say it? Give me your vote. I deserve it. But they come out and say, I I humbly, after parading themselves. That's not Jesus. That's the opposite. Jesus operates with true humility, true meekness. Yes, he said hard things, but he spoke the truth with the perfect measure of love. Every time he spoke the truth, it was love. Yes, he said bold things, but he said it with the perfect measure of compassion. He said bold things because he had compassion. And so that's why he could say things like this, Matthew eleven twenty eight. And it's not, this isn't contradictory to his character. And when he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am, what? Gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And for Jesus, this wasn't just talk. He came to minister to the ones burdened down. And that's what Isaiah continued to prophesy. Verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. This is a picture of the gentle love of our Messiah. He was not only humble and meek. But he was and is so very gentle with sinners. A bruised reed. Reeds in those days were used for a variety of different things. From flutes to walking sticks. But whenever they got bent or were beginning to get bent, they'd be thrown away. But not with Jesus. Jesus doesn't throw away the bent and bruised reeds. What a picture of gentleness. He gently mends broken and bruised sinners, for he is doing the work of his Father. Psalm 34 that we just read earlier, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. This was the opposite of how the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders acted. They crushed people under their rules, putting burdens upon burdens, never lifting a finger to help anyone. But Jesus acted in a manner completely opposite. And so you continue to see why they hated him so much. A smoldering wick he will not quench. So the picture is simply a wick on a candle that's burning out. Last night we were doing our Advent and something happened to our hope candle. And it just wasn't burning very much. So Heather went to try to fix it and the wick just broke right off. So now i got to fix the hope candle tonight when we do our peace candle as well. Um, but, but that's the image here. I mean, what happened when Heather tried to fix it? Just That's how fragile a wick is that's just 
smoldering. It's almost gone. It just break right off. And Jesus comes with great gentleness. These images are to help us to see how gentle your Savior is with you. I don't think you realize, or I realize, how gentle Jesus has been with you or me. Christ is so gentle. He is gentle with those who realize they are these things. We must see our poverty. We must see our desperate situation. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We must see that we are the bruised reed, bent over, about to break under the weight of our own sin. We must see that we are the smoldering wick. Our life is all but gone due to our sinfulness. Those who see their fragile state and repent, it is they who experience the gentle, caring touch of the Savior. It is they that experience the peace and restoration that comes from his hand. This was Jesus' mission, a mission of gentle restoration and healing for the weak and saving of fragile sinners. Aren't you glad he's a gentle Savior? Aren't you glad that his healing touch and his gentle touch continues? Perhaps you're here this morning and you feel like a bruised reed. You are bent over and all but collapsed under the pressures of life, under the expectations of Christmas, under the stresses of family, under the strain of work, under the weight of your own disappointments and disillusionment. Oh, friend, you have a gentle Savior who suffered on your behalf. He is acquainted with grief. He became like you in all respects, yet was without sin. He was tempted as you are, but he never gave in. He suffered so that he might be gentle with you and heal you. And perhaps you're here this morning and and your wick is all but burned out. Oh, friends, you have no fire in yourself. A smoldering wick cannot reignite itself. It needs a flame from outside of itself. Oh, friend, don't look to yourself this morning to try to deal with all your struggles. You look to Christ alone. He came to serve. He came to save. He came to heal hurting sinners. But only those who truly see that they are weak sinners, bruised weeds and smoldering wicks, Only those are the people for whom victory is secured in Christ Jesus. So let's conclude with the last couple of lines here. The second half of verse 20 and verse 21. It says, he'll continue to operate in this way until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. There's that justice again. Justice, God's just verdict. Earlier he proclaims it, here he brings it. Jesus did both. He proclaimed the way to be just with God, and he made it possible. He is the just and the justifier. Jesus is bringing it victoriously. He brings it. That word simply means he thrust it forth. There is nothing stopping him. Jesus humbly, submissively, gently did all the Father asked of him, and neither Satan nor the Jewish leaders could stop him. John 17, 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And his suffering on the cross finished it out and secured the victory. John 19, 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, what? It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And thereby, justice was declared for all who are his. God's just verdict was read and Jesus stood in our place as our guilt was pronounced upon him and his not guilty status, his righteousness, was given to us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so now men are called to believe. They are called to put their hope in Jesus. Like we lit the candle last week, the candle of hope. And only by placing your hope in Jesus will you be at peace with God. 
Verse 21, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. All men, all nations, not just the Jews, are called to put their hope in this one. This one who laid down his life for weak sinners like you and I. And by faith, by believing in him, we become reconciled to God. And when we find our hope in him alone, we are no longer enemies of God. No longer under his just guilty verdict. For those who have faith, for those who have hope in Jesus, God's justice has been satisfied by the obedient and humble work of the suffering servant. Jesus joyfully, obediently came, serving with meekness and gentleness, with patience and suffering, to complete the task the Father gave him, which was to bring many sons to glory. And that type of job didn't lend itself to a PR campaign. So he said, be quiet. Don't go out and tell everyone. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench until, until he brings justice to victory. Friends, there is a timeline here. Jesus is still patient. He is still gentle. It's part of his character. It's who he is. He'll never change. And he's still offering you terms of peace with the Father. But he will not make that offer forever. For we know that he is returning. And when he returns, God's justice will be carried out. And for all those who are not hidden in the Son, who are in him by faith, his justice will mean eternal damnation. Don't think from this passage that Jesus is not a mighty warrior. For upon his second advent, he is not coming lying in a manger dressed in swaddling cloths. No, here's how the Bible describes the second advent, Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which... To strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Friends, the suffering servant is also the king of kings and Lord of lords. Don't forget that. So my appeal to you, if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, is come. While you can. Come and let him heal you. And mend that brokenness. To light you aflame again. And for believers. Don't. Don't buy into the false teaching. That this is just something Jesus does. At the beginning. And then you go on and live your life. According to your own strength. Oh if you're a believer here this morning. And if you're like me. You're being bent right now by the pressures of this life. And you're feeling it. And when that happens, don't go medicate yourself with television and video games and whatever else. Run to the only one who can mend the broken reed and can light the fire once again for that smoldering wick. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your goodness to us. Your just verdict we deserve to be in the guilty column. But by grace we've been saved. Because Jesus in his mercy 
chose us and poured out his own life blood on the cross to take the payment for our sin, to absorb your righteous wrath, God, and then give us his righteousness. Because of that, we stand here and we read the scriptures and we sing songs like, holy, holy, holy. So God, we praise you for that and we thank you. Thank you so much for our suffering servant. And we look forward, Maranatha, come back, King Jesus, come back. And for those in here who are unbelievers, oh Lord, the grace that you've already poured out upon them by simply letting them live is such a gentle grace. Oh Lord, I pray that they wouldn't spurn that. They wouldn't stiff arm you. Lord, that you would soften their heart by the Holy Spirit and that today they would come. Come to Jesus who is humble and lowly. Come to him. His burden is light. Come to him for salvation so that they can be declared not guilty. I pray for these things, Lord, and know, Lord, that your Holy Spirit has to make them happen. So Holy Spirit, do your work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.